thank you, Pastor Danny and uh, praise team for leading us this morning in worship. Join me in your copy of God's Word in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. And um, you can find your way to verse 14 there. This week we begin a four-sermon series on stewardship, on managing the things that God has given to us. Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, defines stewardship as the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. The careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Now, very often, go to a church and, and the pastor says, we're going through a stewardship series, and you go, great, four weeks on tithing. Uh, this is not going to be four weeks on tithing, okay? What God gives us in life is far more than just money. And in fact, we're going to look at a parable today, a parable that Jesus tells in the last week of his life that tells us about what God has given to us or, or teaches us how to manage what, what God has given to us. And this parable, the parable of the talents that you may be familiar with, is really about far more than just money. The parable of the talents that we'll look at this morning in Matthew chapter 25 teaches us that stewardship, that caring for what God has given to us is not first about money, but about what the king, about what Jesus has entrusted his servants with in his absence. Following Jesus ought to lead us to faith-filled use of all that he has given to us for his purposes and his glory, recognizing that God provides for us far more than just money, just physical things. And because my hope is that after looking through uh, the parable of the talents, we'll be able to sort of set the stage for the next three weeks. And we'll be talking about stewardship in different areas of our lives that we'll begin today to find that because our whole lives are given to us in trust by God, that we would be moved to then leverage everything, to use everything that he has given to us for his glory. Amen. If he's given it to us, if he's entrusted it to our care, it's his, and we need to use it. We need to manage it. We need to take careful and responsible management of it because it ultimately belongs to God. Now, this parable this morning is a kingdom parable. It takes place on Tuesday of the, uh, of the last week of Jesus' life in a section of Matthew called the Olivet Discourse. It was that Tuesday of Holy Week, just a few days before Jesus would be arrested and then crucified, where he spends most of the day on the Mount of Olives teaching the people who have come to listen to him. And this parable is, uh, like many of the parables before it, a kingdom parable. And in these parables, Jesus is using everyday objects, everyday characters, everyday situations and images to teach deeper spiritual realities. This parable is ultimately not just about what we do with money, but it's about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God works and what servants in that kingdom do. Would you stand with me as we read Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. Jesus says, For it, for the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted them, Trusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You, know, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, will be given, to everyone who has more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And God be blessed by the reading of his Word, you may be seated. The parable of talents, even though it seems like it's a parable about money, is not really a parable about just money. The parable of the talents teaches us some, some principles about the kingdom of heaven and about characters within or related to the kingdom of heaven that go far beyond money. What I want to do this morning is look at each of the representative characters in the parable and see what Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven through uh, these images. First, let's look at the master and the talents. The master we know is meant to figure God, is meant to figure the king of the universe. This is the case in, in most all of Jesus' kingdom parables. If there's a king or a, or a master uh, a character, that person is meant to, to sort of play the role of God, if you will, in the, uh, in the spiritual teaching of this parable. Here, the master is going to go away for a time. And given the context of the Olivet Discourse, the day uh, in the week in which Jesus is preaching this sermon, prior to him being arrested and crucified, many believe that Jesus is, is telling this parable to, to help to prepare the disciples for his uh, impending absence, if you will. The master is meant to be God. The talents are meant to... Figure God's wise provision and entrustment. God's wise provision and entrustment. The word entrusted means that the master gave these talents, these sums of money or possessions into the authority of his servants. He said, I'm giving this to you to do with it what you will in my name. They are expected to do something with the talents on the master's behalf. Now that word talent can cause a little bit of confusion for us. On the one hand, we, we do have a, another word in English that is talent that has to do with natural abilities or some sort of skill or, or um, uh, capability. But a talent in, uh, in Jesus' day was a measure of weight, like a, like a ton or a pound or a kilogram. Uh, it was not a monetary value. So a talent could be worth a lot if you were weighing out a talent of gold, or it could be worth very little if you're weighing out like a talent of, I don't know, feathers, okay? Right? So a talent is just a, a measure of weight. It's not a measure 
of value. And the talents are given. So we don't know if it's gold. We don't know if it's silver. Uh, Jesus doesn't tell us because that's not important to his parable. But the talents, these, uh, these, these amounts of possessions or money are given to the servants, as Jesus says in the parable, to each according to his ability. This teaches us that the master knows what his servants are capable of. And he gives to them appropriately. He gives to them what he knows that they can responsibly handle. He gives to them what he intends for them to responsibly handle. The master is to figure God or Jesus. The talents are to figure his wise provision and his entrustment to us. Now, here's the point. Here's the king's point of the parable. Jesus, the king of kings, Lord of lords, is teaching us this. That all we have is from the hand and the wisdom of God. Everything we own is his. Everything that we have management or stewardship over in our life belongs to God. The master's entrustment of the talents to the servants is to illustrate for us and to Jesus's disciples in that day to the church today, that all that we have is from the hand of God and all that we have and even all that we don't comes to us by the wisdom and in the wisdom of God. Understand this friend, everything about your life, everything about your life, your intellectual abilities, your strength, your skills, your job, your income, your house, your car, your retirement account, your free time, your family, your friends, the church that you are a member of, even the day and time in which you currently live. Everything about your life and mine has been given to us by God according to what he knows about you and what he intends for you to do with it. Understand this truth. God knows you better than you know you. And your life situation, your time, your abilities, your possessions, all of it is a gift of God given to you in his wisdom to be used by you for his glory. This passage, this parable convicts me of the times that I want to complain about things in my life. But times that I want to complain about my job. God, I wish I had a different job. I wish I had a job where I could just punch in and punch out and, and I could just make chocolate and caramel apples and stuff all day long like I used to. And I just wouldn't have to worry about dealing with difficult situations and hard relationships and spiritual guidance of people. I just want an easier job, God. Why couldn't you have just let me have a job like that? Why do I have to drive a 2009 Ford Fusion? With 130 some odd thousand miles on it. Can't I have a nicer car, God? What about my house? I've got so, I got a long list of things to fix on my house, God. Why couldn't you have given me a better house? Why can't I have a, 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 the kind of job and live in the kind of place that gives me all these so I can have a more comfortable life? Why won't my kids listen to me, God? Why do my wife and I argue about things? Come on, God, surely you can do better than this. Why have you stuck me with this situation? This parable messes me up one side and down the other. When I start thinking about God, why have you done this? Because when I start complaining about that and I, I hold up my complaints in the light of scripture, what I, what I understand about them is that when I'm complaining to God about things in my life, I'm essentially saying to God, God, I know better than you. What you have given me is not the best that you could have given me, God. 
Let's learn a lesson from the guy with two talents. The guy with two talents didn't look at the guy with five talents and complain to the master about what he was given. He just went to work. And the guy with five talents wasn't a jerk about what the master had given to him and gloat and boast in front of the two talent and the one talent guy. So to say, oh, look at all that the master has given to me, suckers. The five talent servant and the two talent servant simply take what the master gives and they immediately put it to work. Friend, you may think that in your life you don't have enough or that God has not given you the best that he can give you. But I promise you that when we stand before God to give account for all that we have done with what he has given to each of us, we shall think that we had enough. We shall think that we had enough. The king teaches us that all that we have is from the hand and the wisdom of God. Everything you have in your life and everything that you lack in your life is because God has given to you according to your ability and your ability to glorify him with what he has given to you. So then, dear friend, today resolve in your heart and mind to be content with what God has given. Resolve in your heart and mind to be content with what God has given. It's so easy to want something different, to want something more, to feel like God hasn't done his best by us. It's so easy to, in our own sinful hearts, and our own sinful minds, to be discontent when we see other people doing better. When we see people who aren't believers, who are, make, who are becoming wealthy by un, uh, unlawful or, or, by, or by sinful means, and we go, seriously, God, you're going to let them get away with that? It's so easy for us to see how other people are doing better or how other people even are doing worse than, than maybe we are, and to be so self-absorbed, self-consumed, that we miss that all that we have and all that we don't have is from God. To be discontent with what he has given us because we feel like he hasn't done well. The master gives no explanation to the five and the two talent servants as to why he gives them five and why he gives them two and why he gives to the, 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 the unfaithful servant one talent. The master doesn't have to give them any explanation. It's his money. It's his stuff. He can do with it what he wants. So friend, all that you have and all that you lack is from the hand of God. Learn to be content with it. Learn to be content with it. Let's look now at the faithful servants, the five talent and the two talent guy. The faithful servants are to figure, they, they, they stand in the place of, in this parable, true disciples of Jesus. True followers, true servants of the master of the king. The five and two talent servants are good servants. They immediately, once they receive the talents that, uh, that the master has given, they immediately go to work in their master's absence, knowing that what he has given to them, he intends to be used for the sake of growing his influence, for the sake of growing his wealth. In the parable, these two servants immediately engage in business, putting their master's wealth to work. They, they trade with it. They invest it. They, they get to work with what the master has left. And in time, they double what he has given to them. They are good servants. And as good servants who have done a good job with what the master has entrusted to them, they receive a reward. Not a monetary reward, though. Right? We, we see the reward in verse 21. Jesus says in, in two places to both servants, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Notice that the master doesn't say you've been 
faithful over a little, I will give you much to be yours. No, I'll set you over much. I'll put more into your stewardship. I'll give you more of what is mine to make more of it for me. And then he says, enter into the joy of your master. Have you considered that as the the reward for what these servants do? Entering into the joy of their master? Not having more stuff given to them, not a plaque on the wall, you know, with their name, you know, servant of the month or whatever the case might be. But just to, to but that there, that the joy of their master would, would give them joy also. That they would be happy about what their master is happy about. That they would be excited about what their master is excited about. That they would do what their master does. And in so doing, they share in life, in relationship, in the joy of their master. And that's the kind of reward that, that I think, uh, bucks against our, our Western commercial materialistic kind of culture. We want stuff. We measure success uh, in stuff or, or in dollar amounts, not necessarily in, the, in, in making other people happy about what we have done with what they have given to us. So this is a countercultural sort of reward, but this is the reward that the master gives to his servants in the parable, and it's the same reward that Jesus intends to give to his true disciples that they would be joyful about the things that he is joyful about, that they would be excited about the things that he is excited about, that they would be about the same work that their master is doing. The faithful servants are to figure true disciples of Jesus. And here's the king's point. This is what Jesus is teaching us in this parable, that true kingdom citizens act obediently out of love for God. True kingdom citizens, true servants of Christ, true followers of Jesus act obediently because they love him. Why, when given these talents by the master, do the servants know to immediately begin investing it? Why why do they know what they're supposed to do? Well, they know this because they know what the master is always doing. The master is always working. The master is always investing. The master is always growing his kingdom, his influence. These two servants, the five talent and the two talent servant, know the heart and the work of the master. And as obedient servants, as good servants, they take their responsibility to the master seriously. These servants do what servants are expected to do. So also church, so also do true citizens of the kingdom of heaven go to work with what God has given and we don't go to work with what God has given complaining about how much or how little he's given. We don't go to work with hearts of, of arrogance over having more than what other people do. We, we don't go to work to build our own kingdom, but to build the kingdom of God, to do the work that God does. And, that we, and we don't do the work of God with the things that God has given in order to get some sort of monetary or financial or material reward from him. We do it because we love him and we want to be obedient. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells a similar parable about servants who are given a task to do, and they fulfill that task faithfully, and they fulfill that task not looking for a reward at the end of the day. Because just because a servant does a good job doesn't mean that the master has to give him a participation trophy at five o'clock that afternoon. Just because you do what you are paid or asked to do doesn't mean you should get a reward for it. It's what you've been asked to do. And Jesus says in Luke 17, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. 
We obey God because we know him. We know his heart. We know what he loves. We love what he loves. We know what work he is doing. And we want to join him in that work as he's entrusted that to us. And we don't do it to get anything out of it other than sharing in the joy of the master. Immediately, the five talent and the two talent servant take all that they have been given and they obediently put it to work. They take all that they have been given and immediately put it to work. Notice that these servants are aware that whether the master gives five or whether he gives two, all five, all two, all eight talents in the story belong to the master. None of them belong to the servants. At the same time, as citizens of God's kingdom, we as Christians do not obey God out of pure obligation. True obedience comes from a right heart and a heart that is right with God. In our house, we often tell our young daughters that obedience is doing the right thing right away with the right heart. Obedience is doing the right thing the right way with the right heart. If any of these are lacking, whatever we do, quote unquote, for the Lord is done disobediently. When we are content with all that God has given knowing that he has entrusted to us the circumstances of our lives out of his wisdom and knowledge and love, then we can obey him out of hearts that truly love him. And it is this loving obedience that is the hallmark of a true Christian, of a true kingdom citizen, doing the right thing right away with the right heart. If God gives you a command, you know that there are commands of God upon your life. And you intend to do them, but you don't, and you intend to do them the right, you, you, you intend to do them, uh, uh, you intend to do the right thing, excuse me, and you intend to do it with the right heart, but you don't intend to do it right away, you're not being obedient. If you do the thing that God has commanded you to do, and you do it right away, or, or you do something that, that you feel God has commanded you to do right away, and you do it with the right heart, but you've not done the thing that God has commanded, you're not being obedient. And if you do the right thing and you do it right away, all that God has commanded, but you do it with a selfish heart or a grumbling heart or a bad attitude, you've not been obedient. Obedience is doing the right thing right away with the right heart. And in doing so, we stand to enter into the joy of our master. Jesus teaches us from the lives of the servants and their their obedience that we ought to seek the reward of godly obedience. And that being obedient to God is reward in itself. In fact, more than anything out of our lives, God wants obedience. He wants us to, to, to do what is right with what he has given to us, to, to uh, exercise the charge that he has placed upon our lives. You remember back in 1 Samuel, about a thousand or so years before Jesus was ever born, Israel had their first king. His name was Saul. He's a man who, who looked good in the sight of all people. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a fairly accomplished warrior. He's a guy that people literally looked up to. He was uh, anointed as the first king of Israel. But then very quickly, Saul begins down a, a path of repeated disobedience to God. When knowing what the right thing to do is, he does the wrong thing. Or, or knowing when he ought to do a thing, he does it the, at the wrong time. Or he does what he ought to do with a, with a wrong heart. And so it is in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that before going into battle, Saul knows that he's supposed to offer a, uh, give a sacrifice to the Lord in seeking the Lord's uh, favor and presence with him in battle. And he's supposed to wait for Samuel, the prophet, to show up to uh, help him to make the sacrifice the right way. 
But Saul gets impatient. Wanting to do the right thing with the right heart, he does it in the wrong timing. And so he hurries up before Samuel has even come to offer the sacrifice himself. And when Samuel shows up, he says essentially to Saul, what is this mess that you have made? He says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, behold, to obey the Lord is better than sacrifice. What God wants more than your good deeds, what God wants wants more than, than you being successful is for you to be obedient. And there is reward in being obedient. There is reward in taking the command of the master and doing with it what he has given you to do. We learn that from the faithful servants. And then we finally learn a lesson from the wicked servant, from, from what I would call the false servant. The wicked servant is meant to resemble a non-believer or a false believer. Either a person who does not know Christ, who is not a follower of Jesus, or someone who says they are, but in their hearts are really not. This, this parable works on, on both levels, okay? It's a, a wicked servant, a false servant. This servant declares when the master returns to settle his accounts with them, he declares that he knows that the master is a hard man. He's a demanding man who reaps where he has not sown and gathers where he has not scattered seed. And in his own expressed fear of this demanding master, this one talent servant, the wicked servant, is unwilling in the master's absence to risk taking any loss on the talent that he has been given. And so he buries it in the ground. Where the faithful servants go to work with what the master has given and and in return they receive a reward. This faithless, this unfaithful, this wicked, this false servant who does nothing with what the master has entrusted him. He does not receive reward but a punishment. Where the master rewards the five and the two talent servants by declaring that they have done well, that they are good and faithful and invites them into the, the joy of uh, the joy that is his own. The master says now to this third servant, the one talent servant, that he is wicked and lazy. You're not good. You're not faithful. You have not done well. You are wicked and lazy and you have done poorly. By burying what was given to him, this third servant, the one talent servant, servant, Demonstrated that he did not have the master's best intentions at heart at all. He didn't care about growing the master's kingdom. He was just afraid for his own life. He reveals by his actions that he was never truly committed to the master. I thought you were this way, says the servant. So I went and hid the stuff because I was afraid that if I'd have lost anything, you'd have been angry with me. So the master calls him what he is. Wicked and lazy. And more than firing the servant in this parable, the master sends him to a place of outer punishment, place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so all at once in his parable, Jesus brings the spiritual realities of the parable and pushes them right to the forefront of the matter, which is to say this parable is not just about how you work and what you do with money. This, this, this parable is about spiritual realities and your obedience, your loyalty, your, 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 Uh, righteous following of the king. Here's the king's point of this kingdom parable. False kingdom citizens do not obey, but disobey. False kingdom citizens disobey because they do not really know God. This is what we learn from the third servant. 
This man goes and hides what he hasn't been entrusted with until his master returns because he is wrongly afraid of the master. He has certain preconceptions about what kind of man this master is. And so in those preconceptions, he's afraid of what may happen if he doesn't return a prophet. So he goes and buries the thing. This servant assumes that it is better not to risk anything of the master's work with the ma- uh, not not to risk anything of the master's and thus not to risk losing anything. And so rather than to do the master's work with the master's gifts, the servant does his own work with what the master has entrusted to him. When the master returns, he sees nothing, no fruit of the labor of the servant and he calls the servant what he is, wicked and lazy. Unlike the faithful servants, this third servant is really only a servant of himself. He's not a servant of the master. He's a servant of himself. In assuming he knew it was best to bury the talent, he totally disobeyed the master and sought, by, and sought only his own well-being. I just got to come out of this unscathed. Thinking the master to be hard and demanding, he risks nothing. He works with nothing. And in risking nothing and doing no work, he really risks everything. Do you see that? That in doing nothing, he risks everything. By being disobedient, he has done the wrong thing, the wrong way, with the wrong heart. And he reveals who he really serves, himself. As we think about stewardship and managing well all that God has given to us for his glory, for the expansion of his kingdom... We need to, in looking at the third servant, to consider what the fruit of our life says about who we serve. What does the fruit of your life say about whom you serve? Is the fruit of your life, is the, is the evidence of, of your life, the works of your hands, the, the relationships that you have and that you are trying to manage, the job that, that you work hard at, are these parts of your life Showing fruit of being a servant of the king. Or do they show fruit of being a servant of yourself? Do you make decisions about your job and what sort of job you will pursue based upon your own personal advancement in a career? Or do you think about your job and the job that you'll, or the career that you'll pursue in terms of how can I bring God the most glory with the t- talents and gifts and, and abilities that he has given to me? Do you think about your bank account? And the the amount of dollars that are in there in terms of growing it for yourself and and developing a a, a comfortable retirement or a comfortable standard of living now in this life? Or do you look at all that God has given and provided to you in your bank account, the dollars that are to your name? Do you look at those to see how can I maximize God's glory with what he's given to me here? How you look at your family and your children Do you want to just raise well-behaved kids who will be successful in their own right? Or parents, are we looking at our children, grandparents, are we looking at our grandchildren and the relationships that God has entrusted to us with them to see how can I bring God the most glory in the life of my daughter or my son or my grandson or my great-granddaughter? How can I lead this person to know and love Christ and, and to know and love God more than anything else in the world so that they want to make him famous more than they want to be success, successful or to make a name for themselves? What does the fruit of my life say about who I really serve, about who is really my master? 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Jesus in conversation with religious leaders of the day says these words to him. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. A tree can call itself an orange tree, but if it grows apples, it's an apple tree. A fig tree can call itself a cherry tree, but if it grows figs, it's a fig tree. A tree is known by its fruit. This principle is, uh, has application for our lives as well as we think about everything that God has given us. What is the fruit of my life? The, the work of my hands, the thoughts of my mind, the, the time that I have with my children. What is it revealing about who I really serve? Am I a servant of the king or am I a servant of myself? And if the fruit of your life, as you seriously consider this, is showing that you are more a servant of yourself than you are a servant of the king, heed the warning of the parable of the servants and their talents. If you are serving yourself in all that you do, you are demonstrating that your heart is not really bent or oriented toward God, but toward yourself. And a heart that is oriented to self is a heart full of sin, is a heart full of disobedience to God, is a heart full of wanting to do the, the thing, uh, do everything in our life our way, on our timing, with the people that we want, and when and where and how we want to do it, not the way that God has instructed us to. We know as the Bible directs us and as our consciences convict us that we have done things out of selfish motivations and self-serving purposes that are wrong, morally wrong. And our consciences convict us of this. Scripture tells us that that moral rebellion against what God has designed for us has separated us from our God and King, our Master. Separated us infinitely. An infinite distance stands between us and God when we are in our sin. He is infinitely holy. And one offense against his infinitely holy character is, is an offense of infinite magnitude. Yet God does not desire for us to remain in sin with hearts that are oriented to self and self-preservation and, and self-sustenance and, and, and self-promotion. God has made us to have hearts that are oriented around him. And so he doesn't leave us in our sin, but he offers a means by which we can have our hearts changed. We can have our orientation on our world changed. We can see the things that he has given to us in their right light for what they truly are. Not stuff that belongs to us, but things that belong to him and not things that are meant to be used for my glory and my kingdom and my influence, but things that are meant to be used for God's. And the way that we go about having our heart changed to see the world differently, to bear fruit that is godly, is by turning from our sin, repenting from it, recognizing that being oriented around myself and what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, is the wrong way to live. That's not what I've been created for. So we turn from that and we turn to God and we say, God, I am sorry for having lived this way. I see that I'm made for much more. And we say, God, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who never once sinned, who was never oriented around himself, but only ever oriented around you and your purposes. God in flesh, he, without sin, took his, was taken to the cross. And there, as he died, he gave his life as a substitute for mine. So that I can go from being oriented around myself, from only wanting what I want, to now being oriented around 
what you want, God, and what you have made me to be. Amen. Having that life change take, take place is as simple as turning from your sin, turning from yourself, repenting of those things, believing in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins so that you can have a, a new heart come to life within you. Believing that he rose from the dead and that he is king of kings and lord of lords, giving your life over to his rule and to his reign. Friends, some of you today may need to give your life to Christ for the very first time. And in a few moments, we're going to have a time of response. Today is the day for you to give your life to Jesus. For you to turn from being oriented around yourself to being turn, uh, turning and, and, and being oriented around God and his purposes for your life. Being a true follower of Jesus, a true disciple of Jesus, a true servant of the King. Christian, some of you have rightly and, and appropriately already placed your faith in Christ. You've been uh, uh, walking with Jesus some time, but maybe over the last several years of your life, there's been a pattern of self-service and not King service. Maybe this morning as we have time to respond, you just need to come and repent of that. And ask God to, to work in your heart again, to reorient you around His purposes and His will for your life. His kingdom. I want to leave us with three questions to consider as we prepare our hearts to respond to this passage today. The first question is this. What master do you serve? What master do you serve? Have you really, truly repented of sin and placed faith in Jesus? Are you a, can you rightly say of yourself that you are a follower of Christ? In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says to his disciples and those following him, he said, uh, Luke 9, 23 says, Jesus said this to all. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, be my disciple. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What master do you serve? Are you daily dying to yourself that you might live for God? Are you daily, moment by moment, taking up your cross that you might walk in the footsteps of Jesus? Not to be crucified for sins, but that you might put to death your life of sin to be made to live by God's power for his purposes. What master do you serve? Second question. What has God entrusted to you? What has God entrusted to you? And we could take physical inventory of everything that is in our lives today. We could, you know, house and, you know, these cars and kids and this job and that sort of thing. But Christian today, church today, I want to point us to a greater thing that God has entrusted to us. More than physical things, he has entrusted to us a spiritual command, a spiritual commission. Jesus gives this parable in Matthew 25 about the talents. The week uh, that he will be arrested and crucified and will rise again. The king is about to go away and he is leaving things with his servants, something to do. And if we turn just a few pages to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, before Jesus is, uh, uh, is ascended to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, until he'll return a second time to call the church to himself, look at what he entrusts, look at what he gives into the stewardship of his disciples. Matthew 28, verse 18, when Jesus came to them, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the master. I'm the king of all. I own it all. Therefore, go. Here's what I'm entrusting you with in my absence. 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I don't think it's by accident that Jesus's final command to the disciples before he ascends to heaven is not a command about investing their money wisely. His final command is about investing the gospel broadly. Tell people the good news that I have died for sins and been raised again and that all who trust in me can be saved. Make disciples, not just of the people that you like, but of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Identifying both with God in heaven as as one who has died to sin and been raised to new life. And identifying with the body of believers, other Christians who have likewise done the same thing. And teach them. Teach them to obey. Teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Why? Because when we obey what God has commanded us to do, there is joy in it. Church, what has God entrusted to us? More than a building, more with funds in the bank, more than, than, than funds in the bank, more than this corner, this plot on this corner of this city, more than the people that are seated here in this room today. Christ has given to us, church, the gospel to steward, to manage, to, to carefully and responsibly uh, uh, see to its growth and expansion around the world. Stewardship. And the parable in Matthew 25 is really far more about what we do with the gospel than it is what we do with our money. What we do with the gospel will influence what we do with our money, what we do with our time, what we do with our, our abilities and our families and the things that God has given to us. But it starts with what we do about the most important thing. Final question. What master do you serve? What has God entrusted to you? Third and finally, what does the fruit of your life demonstrate about your obedient love for Christ? How does the fruit of your life demonstrate that you obediently love Jesus? It's not a question I can lead you to answer this morning. You, you'll have to search your own heart and your own mind this week. Pray that God will reveal to you the place where your, your life does show fruit of obedient love to Jesus with what you do with the gospel and what you do with what he has given to you. And you'll have to ask that God will convict you to show you where you're not obediently loving Jesus with all that he has given to your care. These are questions to consider as we respond to God's word this morning and as we prepare our hearts even for the next few weeks about how we will grow in Christ to be more obedient, to be more mature, to more faithfully steward the things that he has given for us to do and to put to work for his glory. Let's pray.